Hello and welcome to Past Deadline, the podcast from Central Michigan Life where we go behind the headlines and talk about the behind the scenes uh, with our staff. Um, I am Sarah Kellner. I am the uh, one of the associate editors here at CM Life and with me is my fellow reporter Emily Davis. Uh, today we're going to be talking about sexual assault, our edition that came out on October 3rd. So both of us have reported a lot on sexual assault over the last couple years. I started reporting on sexual assault um, about two years ago, and I think that it's important that we talk about this really uncomfortable topic, especially this time of year, because as you know, um, right now we're in the middle of what is called the red zone, which is the time between the first week of college classes and the last week of basically the first semester at a university is called the red zone, which is when women, students in general, are 50% more likely to be sexually assaulted. Um, I know you've written stories about the red zone before, Sarah. What was your first experience just reporting on sexual assault in general? Um, So my first actual experience on reporting on sexual assault was actually covering um, the Ian Elliott trial over the summer. Um, I was a summer editor here at CM Life, and so since I was the only one here, I got to be the one to cover that trial. That was actually my very last day as summer editor, and that was really, really tough um, because we had done so much reporting on it. I wanted to make sure that I did this entire story justice since this was at the time, the very last, um, like, final closing of this story. So I tried really hard to make it the best that I could. I think it went pretty okay. Um, It was really, really um, cool to see these young women who, um, instead of looking really, like, sad and, uh, you know, disappointed, they were very strong and happy and surrounded by supporters. I mean, you were at that trial and Mm -hmm. um, they literally had to move us into a bigger courtroom because we had such a large crowd that wanted to watch and it was standing room only. It was a very, very surreal experience, but I'm so glad that I got to be there and I got to report on it. That was an awesome day, but I had no idea that that was your first experience really writing about sexual assault. That's insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a lot of pressure. I had very little experience before that so I kind of just got like thrown into the fire but um you know I'm glad I did it and now honestly like most of that reporting is going to be much easier because I'm not like ending this gigantic year-long like series um, right in the future so definitely yeah I think my first time I was also completely thrown in because my first time ever having to do any kind of reporting on sexual assault was actually when Rachel Wilson, the defendant in the Ian Elliott case, um, well, the survivor in the Ian Elliott case, was when she came to CM Life and wanted to talk to us about sexual assault. And I'd never, I'd talked to women about sexual assault before, but only as a friend, never like as a reporter. And that is difficult because you have to kind of figure out how to remove yourself emotionally, but not too much. You still have to be there in the moment and you have to be there for the person, but also not break down and cry with them like you probably want to or at least I want to usually when women talk about that because it's heartbreaking Mm -hmm. so how did you kind of during the trial and when you've talked to sexual assault survivors out of the trial how did you like 
keep yourself together and focus on that reporter side? Yeah, so I was actually really nervous going into the trial because I cry at everything. Like, every single movie I've ever seen, like, makes me cry. So I'm like, great, I'm going to have to try not to be sobbing over in, like, the press box. Um, (laughs) But I was actually really impressed with myself for being able to, like, not only hold it together, but while I was affected by what they were saying, I wasn't, like, saddened. Um, I really just, you know, reminded myself that the best way for me to do this is to, um, you know, not get super emotional. So that way I can really listen for quotes and like pay attention to all of these people in the room and make sure that, uh, I was covering it in the best way possible. Cause those women had plenty of people there to cry with them. And mm-hmm. that was not my responsibility that day. Um, it was really hard, but I was actually very happy with how I was able to hold myself together during the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So. It can be really hard. I think really only people who've reported on things like that can get it. Like even after an event like that, when you're just the one on the sidelines, it can be really tough emotionally. Yeah. Um, so tell me a little bit more about uh, your experience reporting on sexual assault, specifically uh, talking to Rachel Wilson, who you said came into – CM Life Mm -hmm. to talk to you and basically just told you her whole story and then you had to figure out what to do with it. What was that like? Yeah, well, first of all, for people who are listening and might have no idea what we're talking about, um, the story we're referring to is a story that came out in October of 2018 and it was called Breaking Her Silence, a Sexual Assault Survivor's Story. Um, a young woman, Rachel Wilson, came to the CM Life office last summer. Well, she originally emailed me. I was the editor-in-chief of CM Life at the time. Emailed me, told me she had something to talk to me about. And then she called me that same day, told me that she had been sexually assaulted by the university's previous um, student government association president. Now, that kind of rang a few bells for me, and once I started talking to people, everyone was suspicious because the SGA president had just been dismissed from the university. Um, That was incorrect. The SGA president had just left the university, and there were articles that we had actually published um, saying that he had been accused of sexual assault, and there was a case against him that that case was dismissed due to lack of evidence. And that was a few months before that we had published that, I think, and we just didn't hear anything about it after until Rachel got a hold of me. And so I was interested in talking to her, and she came into the CM Life office. Um, The first time I spoke to her really was not a good conversation because she was in a really vulnerable state. She had just been told by the prosecutor in that case that – Basically, he didn't believe her. So she was in a state, and I think a lot of sexual survivors are in this state when they're talking to reporters. They don't know if they can trust you or not, and you have to be really, really careful because you want that story and you want to share their story, but you also want to do it on their terms, and you need to understand that it's the worst thing that's ever happened to them, and they're putting that in your hands. So you have to make them comfortable, and you have to get them to trust you, And in that first conversation, there was a man in the room with me who um, was just asking a lot of questions, and I could tell she was really uncomfortable with the way she was being spoken to by that man, and he didn't really seem to pick up on the fact that she was uncomfortable. So she left that meeting, and I was essentially thought that the story was over at that point. 
but after about two to three months of talking to her and just reaching out, letting her know I was there, thinking about her, um, she finally decided to come talk to me, and we actually didn't meet in the office that second time. She came to my home. It was just me and her where she was a little more comfortable, and I just let her talk. I don't know what you really do when you talk to survivors, but I kind of just find the best method is to just let them speak and just wherever they feel like talking, whenever they feel like talking, I try to be there. But um, after we had a few conversations, I worked on this story for like five or six months. Probably you were there. Mm-hmm. You talked to me about it. Yep. You read four or five drafts of that story. I did, yeah. <laughs> um, and finally, I published the story on October 11th. And the story basically went through the night she was assaulted um, and then her fight not only in the courtroom trying to get a case against Ian Elliott, but in school trying to get the university to understand what happened. And luckily the university was actually great and worked with her in that, and he was dismissed from the university, which we later found out was due to sexual assault and not because he was in pursuit of better opportunities, like SGA wanted all of the university to believe. And that's a really long-winded story, but basically after a year of that and a year of a lot of court proceedings, the case was the case was picked up again by the Michigan Attorney General's office. And then then what happened? Um yeah, so I can I can fill in <laughs> Thank here you. Um, that's a lot. Yeah, I was really wrapping up this story over the summer, so I went back and looked at all of that. So, um the story was published in October. Um and then in December, the attorney general's office decided to reinstate the charges. They reinstated it in October. Did they? Okay. Um, but I do know that they were um, eventually dismissed by a judge because they said since it wasn't, like, a, a mistrial, like nothing technically went wrong with the trial, um, they couldn't. But then the attorney general's office, I believe this was in either December or January, re- uh, uh, pressed new charges against him Mm -hmm. um so then they finally said that they had enough evidence to go to trial and then a after a preliminary hearing um where they had i believe four women yeah so in that preliminary hearing um four women came forward to testify about ian elliott saying that they basically had super similar experiences to what rachel wilson had had they had felt drugged at some cases, just like Rachel Wilson had felt when she was around Ian. Um, some of them were assaulted by him. And one of those women, Landria, Black, Landria Blackmore, who was a CMU student, actually ended up filing a second case against him, which none of us saw coming at all because when I first met Rachel, the case was done. She had no hope of getting another case. And then less than a year later, here was a second case, and they were both going to trial. It's pretty awesome. And then this summer, um, Ian Elliott actually accepted a plea deal to one year, a minimum of one year in prison, up to, I think, 15 years. Yeah, I think 15 was the maximum. Um, Both cases were consolidated, so he is serving this time for both cases, and he also had to file as a sexual offender for life. And I know to some people, people who weren't involved in this case for so long, that doesn't seem like a lot, but considering he was going to get away with absolutely no consequences. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember um, I got to talk to 
Rachel a couple days after I found out that he had accepted the plea deal. And I asked her, how how do you feel about this? Like he was facing a possibility of 15 years in prison. And now we're looking at one year. And she said she was very happy with it because if they had gone to trial, there was a possibility he could have completely been acquitted of all charges and served no time. And odds are um, he would have ended up serving about a year, maybe two years anyway. Mm -hmm. So this was exactly what she and Landria both wanted. That's what she had told me. And she... She felt like it was finally victorious. Exactly. Oh, yeah. The day she found out about the plea deal, she called me while I was at work this summer, and she was bawling, and I thought that, like, the case was dismissed or something, something horrible had just happened, but she was happy crying, and she was like, it's over, it's finally over, and I don't think you understand if you're not involved in something like this, like the toll being in a trial like that or in Mm -hmm. a case like that at all tapes on the survivors. Yeah. That's why I don't understand people who think that a lot of survivors are lying because I've seen the toll that Mm -hmm. the process takes on them. Like, I've watched women testify about, like, the way their vagina felt and stuff like that. They have to describe the way the man looked in Mm -hmm. front of a courtroom. Mm -hmm. Like, that's awful. Yeah. Yeah. She said she was really glad she didn't have to go through with that trial because that would have been like two weeks of eight hours a day Mm -hmm. just being probed with questions yeah um her entire life would have been violated yeah in that courtroom absolutely um yeah so uh rachel was kind of an interesting story because she came to cm life Mm -hmm. to tell her story you didn't Mm -hmm. have to go and seek it out she wanted to tell it um A more recent story that uh, I just worked on that's in our edition that came out on October 3rd is about um, a woman named Lisa Saruga, and she also reached out to CM Life in that way. Um, I remember it was October 15th, 2018. It Mm -hmm. was right after Rachel's story was published, um, and she called the newsroom, and um, we only have a phone over by the advertising section, so somebody called over and said, uh, somebody wants to talk to an editor, so I just ran over because I wasn't doing anything, and then she uh, told me this really long story about how in 1983 she was sexually assaulted in her dorm room by a man in a ski mask who was holding a knife, and um, she told me most of the details of the story right Mm -hmm. on the phone. So I wrote it all down um, and we talked about it with some of the editors to see what we wanted to do. And unfortunately, we weren't able to do anything until this summer. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I think you may have forgotten to mention a part that I thought was interesting about the case with the prosecutor. You mm want to go into that a little bit? Wasn't when she called us, wasn't Robert Holmes involved? She was he talking was. about Robert Holmes. He was, and yeah. that was the connection to yeah, Rachel. Yes, because um, her case was dismissed shortly after Rachel's case was dismissed initially. And it was um, by the same prosecutor. It was, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this summer, uh, while I was here, she set up an uh, interview. And so she came in, and um, we ended up talking for about an hour and a half. Uh, I was the only one in the newsroom that day, so we just sat in the conference room. It was really low-key. It was like a Friday afternoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, just like you said, I just really let her talk. So um, this was a much different experience than I think you had, though. Mm-hmm. She wasn't as emotional as Rachel probably was because this is a woman who was sexually assaulted 35 years ago. 
Um, her case was dismissed almost an entire year ago, and she had written a book between the time that I had talked to her in October and talking to her again in June. So she had much more time to kind of reconcile with her feelings and mm-hmm. really, um, you know, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of kind the of word. Cope. Yeah, exactly. She had a lot of time to cope and really, like, reflect. Mm-hmm. So um, she did get emotional in some parts, but she was very okay talking about most of it. Um, I kind of just let her talk and then I would ask a few like little follow-up questions just here and there just to get some clarification but basically she just told me her entire book Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) which was really funny I remember uh, when I was listening to the recording while I was writing um, there were a couple of times where she told me oh my gosh like you're just gonna get to you're gonna get the whole book here so um, that's awesome yeah but she told me such Uh, interesting details because since she's written a book about this she has like a lot of like symbolism that she's noticed and a lot of like parallels she's been able to tie so I was able to use these really really like beautiful details Mm -hmm. um in the story um one of my favorite details was um in the first part of the story I open with her walking through Barnes Hall, which is the dorm that she lived in mm-hmm. when she was assaulted. Mm-hmm. Um, Barnes Hall was torn down this summer. Actually, it was torn down the day that she came for our interview. Wow. Um, yeah. Wow. So uh, I wonder how that felt for her. Did she? Um, she did talk about it a little bit. So she loved Barnes. Mm-hmm. She lived there for two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, she talked about... Um, all of these really cool experiences she had with her friends, like all of her best friends lived there. Mm -hmm. Um, She told me about how there used to be like a lounge with a TV and Mm -hmm. all of them piled in together to watch the world premiere of Michael Jackson's Thriller music video. That is awesome. That's such a cool detail that she shared with me. Yeah. Um, But yeah, so she came and visited right before they started uh, like removing asbestos because that's when like people wouldn't be able to go in anymore. Mm-hmm. And she just walked around the building, really like thought about it. You know, it had been a pretty decent amount of time since the last time she was there. And um, she was having all these happy memories, looking at all of this fun stuff, saw like her friend's rooms, remembered her time being a desky mm-hmm. um, until <clears throat> she got to the room that she lived in when she was assaulted and she said she was just completely like overcome with emotion um she said she was surprised with the amount of emotion she had um and she had really thought about the fact that um she didn't get to take the time to heal in 1983 after it happened um she told me that uh after she was raped it was on a saturday morning and she was literally in classes that monday so she well, I'm um, sure the resources on campus were nothing like they are now. SAPA did not yeah, exist back then. It did not. Um, and she said part of it was the resources and part of it was also her. She was trying so hard to keep her life normal. Um, she said she went to a couple of counseling sessions and was like, no, I think I'm fine. And then she didn't figure out until her case was reopened um, that – she really didn't do as much healing as she probably should have. So um, the year when her case was being looked into took a lot out of her, and Mm -hmm. she really had to do a lot of work to be okay because she had been able to, like, just stuff it, 
down. Um, for about 20, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. For 35 years, she was able to just not really think about it, kind of repress the emotions. But mm-hmm. as soon as they reopened her case, um, like, all of those emotions flooded back. Right. So um, what are some things that you encountered while you were working with Lisa that you weren't expecting before you started reporting on sexual assault? Um, Yeah, I was actually uh, pleasantly surprised with just how how trusting she was. Um, I mean, she really just kind of let me go and write my story and then she just wanted to fact check it after Mm -hmm. and I was really kind of surprised I was expecting her to want to um, review it a little more and uh, really make sure that it was like tailored the way she wanted it Mm -hmm. Um, so I was very pleasantly surprised with uh, how much she just let me write what I thought was most important Um, I was glad that she had that trust in me that she trusted me as a writer to um like handle her story well Mm -hmm. um and that made me feel really good as a reporter um because it's really hard when you have a source who really wants control over the story Mm -hmm. so it's really really freeing to be able to just write exactly what I want to write Mm -hmm. and then um you know just make sure that they're okay with the final product definitely yeah that is kind of how I went about writing with Rachel too um like you said she The case was a lot more fresh for her, obviously, and it had just happened to her. So I did let her look over the story, but it was mostly like fact checking. And I just I treat sexual assault sources differently than I treat regular sources, which I know you do, too. I Mm -hmm. think that's how we do it at CM Life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's very important to treat them differently and not in like a bad way treating Mm -hmm. them differently, but just making sure that you're very, very conscious of their feelings, making sure that you're being extra, extra careful with Mm -hmm. accuracy and um, like facts and stuff like that, because you do not want to have something that's incorrect in a story like that. Exactly. Well, when you take into, when you think about the fact that less than 20% of victims come forward, even less than that on a college campus, this is the small minority of women who have enough bravery to come forward, or I don't want to say enough bravery because they're all brave, but a small amount of people come forward. So mm-hmm. when they do come forward, you need to be careful and mm-hmm. be aware. Yeah. Mostly is yeah. the advice I would have for other reporters. Yeah. It's just, it's not just your story. It is this person's entire life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Plus this is, this isn't like covering you know, somebody getting a scholarship. Mm-hmm. Like, that's really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably pretty cool. But, I mean, that's a pretty small detail <laughs> in their life. When you're mm-hmm. talking to a sexual s- assault survivor about their sexual assault, that is most likely one of the worst things that has ever happened to them. Mm-hmm. And so you want to make sure you're handling that very, very carefully because this is literally probably one of the biggest things that has ever happened to them. Exactly. It's so much different than just, um, you know, writing a small feature story about somebody who had something cool happen, and those are always great, but, um, Definitely. you know, they don't hold it as close. Definitely not, and I would say for us, I'm going to speak for the both of us, I think these are a million times more rewarding to work on. Not that I don't love the feature stories. I think my favorite story I've ever written was a story about a three-legged cat, but... <laughs> Rachel's story is a million times more rewarding than that because oh, absolutely. I was able to help 
her and hundreds of other women who felt mm-hmm. connected to her. And they've been able to form like a little community through mm-hmm. sharing stories like that. Yeah. Well, plus, because you wrote that story and called so much attention to it, the attorney general's office looked into it mm-hmm. and realized that there was more they could do with it. So not only did you have an impact on our newsroom and on Rachel, but you literally had a statewide impact in that case. So Sarah, that's sweet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that just really heightens the reward. Like that's so much Mm -hmm. different than like the three-legged cat. That's a wonderful (laughs) story, but it doesn't have a statewide impact. Exactly. like, Like one where the attorney general's office gets involved. Exactly. Exactly. And just a lifelong impact on all of the women involved. The four women who came forward to testify in the preliminary hearing for Rachel, the relationship that they all have together now is really cool to watch, that they all feel a lot less alone now, which Mm -hmm. is cool because maybe if that story was never written, they probably never would have even known that the other existed. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. Um, In our October 3rd edition, which was a uh, special edition all about sexual assault, Mm -hmm. um, not only do we have the story in there about Lisa Saruga, it's called My Name is Lisa, um, and it's about her story, it's about her book, and about her fight in Lansing to change laws to um, give sexual assault survivors a better chance at justice. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also outlined a very comprehensive story about all of the resources that are available on campus. And Mm -hmm. I think it's very important that we talk about those. Um, So Emily is the one who wrote that story. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about what it was like gathering the information for that story and how you were able to create this really comprehensive piece about um, sexual assault resources. Yeah, so I have been reporting on sexual assault for a couple years, so a lot of the people on CMU's campus that work with sexual assault survivors, I've already spoken to. So it was pretty easy for me to get everyone together in a room and just talk to who I needed to talk to. So for that, I talked to our chief of police, which is Larry Klaus. Um, I also spoke to Brooke Oliver Hempenstall, who is the director of SAPA, which is a really awesome program that... Um, CMU was the first university to have, but I know it's starting to grow across the country, which is awesome. It is sexual assault, sexual aggression peer advocates, I think is what it is. Sexual aggression peer advocates. And basically it's really awesome program of, I want to say 60 to 70 CMU students who act as a support line for students, not just of sexual assault, but, um, harassment, stalking or just people who have friends who have been through those things and they need a support person. SAPA is a 24-hour hotline and just resource for students, and they are not mandatory reporters, so they're really just there to tell students what their options are, who they can talk to, um, and to just be there as support, which is awesome. So Brooke was there, and also Mary Martinez, our um, Title IX coordinator and our interim director of OCRI, which is the Office of Civil Rights and Institutional Equity. She was there. Um, And they pretty much just talked to me about their different processes for helping students with sexual assault. Um, The police and OCRI obviously are non-confidential resources. So they are who students would go to when they want to report and file a criminal case or if they just want to um, 
pursue a case through the school, which I think can be a really great option for students because um, at CMU, OCRI can help you change your class schedule if the person that assaulted you is in your classes or um, change their class schedule. Uh, they can help you get a new room if you don't want to live in your resident hall if that person is there, or they can change that person's room. Um, in the case of Rachel, they even, the semester that she was assaulted, they dismissed all of her classes and just kind of wiped that semester like off the slate for her because she was really struggling in her classes. And they even um, refunded her room, I believe, like because she left in the middle of the semester and they didn't make her pay for living there the entire semester. So the university can help you with a lot of things like that. And SAPA is a really amazing resource because they can walk you through everything. Um, they can help you go get a rape kit done after you've been assaulted, which can be a really extensive, invasive process. And like I mentioned in Rachel's story, a lot of survivors don't know what their rights are when they're going to get that kit done, so they don't know what to ask for. And having a SAPA or just a friend there in general can really help have some accountability for you. Mm -hmm. And SAPA can really help you just figure out what your options are because sexual assault isn't really treated like any other crime. You know, if you don't want to report to anyone, that's completely fine, but it is best to talk to someone just so you can understand that you're not alone and that there are so many resources just on our campus and hopefully worldwide soon if SAPA grows as much as I hope it will because really the only thing, one of the things that I think is most important for survivors is just having someone there mm -hmm. to listen to them. Yeah, um, actually, another interesting detail about uh, Lisa's story mm -hmm. is even though she hasn't been a student for nearly 30 years, um, she was able to have SAPAs with her every step of the way through her um, investigation that mm -hmm. was reopened um, a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. um, so they're not only a resource for current students, but for anybody in the CMU community who is uh, – in need of some help. Exactly. And um, SAPA's director, Brooke, is a woman sent here from heaven. She is an angel on earth. She would do anything for any survivor that came forward. So even if you are not a CMU student or haven't been a CMU student, I'm sure Brooke would be more than willing to help you or point you in the, point you in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, talking about OCRI investigations and mm -hmm. police investigations. Now, those are separate things, right? Yes, they are separate. Um so I can't speak to how it works at any other university, but at CMU, you can decide to pursue an investigation with the police, with OCRI, with one or the other, or not at all. Um, OCRI conducts their investigation pretty similarly to the way police would in conduct an investigation. They look at evidence, they look at things like text messages, they interview anyone involved, they interview witnesses but they don't have quite the amount of power that police have. So, you know, if they want to interview a witness and that witness doesn't want to speak to them, they don't really have to. So there are challenges like that. But um, the benefit of talking to Oakry is that your assailant can get dismissed from the university or he can be issued a PPO so he doesn't come near you, things like that, he or she. Um, so I would say that's the benefit through going to Oakry, but the benefit through going to the police is that obviously you can pursue a criminal case, but if you're worried about your safety, I'd say the police are probably, oh, try to, but I'd say police are probably the best suited to help you because they've dealt with that a million times and they can at least tell you how to watch out for yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. 
in the aftermath of that traumatic event. And I would say um, the most important thing in a police case when I was speaking to Lieutenant Chief Klaus now, not Lieutenant Klaus (laughs) anymore, um, he did stress how important it is that survivors get rape kits done. And that can be a really, really difficult thing to do. But if you want to pursue a police case, um, a criminal case, that is, it's not necessary, but it can really, really help your case. Mm-hmm. So. Awesome. Um, well, I think we're pretty close to being able to wrap up here. Um, but did you have any final comments that uh, you would like listeners to know about um, sexual assault at CMU or what it was like working with survivors? Um, well, that's a lot. (laughs) Obviously, you can tell by my rambling, I have a lot to say about it. But um, working with sexual assault survivors has definitely changed the way I think about reporting. And I know in the future, I would love to do some work with survivors just to kind of put resources out there because so many of them don't know what their rights are. And a lot of us don't know what our rights are. Before working on this, I couldn't tell you what would happen when I got to get a rape, when I, if I went to get a rape kit done. Um, I couldn't tell you how a criminal case would go in sexual assault. I could tell you that for if I was stabbed, I'd know what to do. I'd know what would happen at the hospital. Why don't people know that with sexual assault? So I think after working on this, it just made me want to get the word out there more. But... If I could say one thing to sexual assault survivors, I would say just remember you are not alone. There are so many people out there who want to help you and who are there just to listen. And at CMU especially, there are so, so many resources that are there for you to help you. And, yeah, you're not alone. What about you, Sarah? Um, I don't know. I would say uh, I don't know. <laughs> Um, I mean, I think it's a very important topic to be talking about and reporting on. So, um, I hope that CM Life continues to report on this topic. I think your piece was really, really helpful because a lot of people don't know what to do after you get sexually assaulted until it happens to them. So that was a really great way to, um, get people informed before it happens. That way they don't have to learn the process as they're going through it. They can already know what the process is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's very important for everybody uh, because um, everybody, unfortunately, has the, uh, just probability-wise, has the chance of being sexually assaulted at some point. Or having a friend. Exactly. Close to them. Exactly. And so you want to be aware. Yeah, them, exactly. So. so I think it's very important that people are aware of um, – what to do in that situation and where to go and who to talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, we we prepare for all kinds of other emergencies. Like, you know, we all know what to do when the tornado siren goes off. We all know what to do when a fire alarm goes off. So we should know what to do in this type of situation as well. That was so well put, Sarah. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you. I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. um, well, this was Past Deadline, and thank you for talking with us.